IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we are celebrating the exact midpoint of 2022 by honoring our favorite under-the-radar albums. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He still can't get a best new music in spite of his 7.7 tattoo, Ian Cohen. <laughs> Ian, how are you? You know an episode of IndieCast is destined for greatness when we begin with a joke that probably requires uh, at least two minutes of like backtracking to explain it to our listeners who maybe aren't well versed in the indie pop universe but yeah we're we're gonna get to that we have like we have a ton of banter (laughs) this week because so as you will remember i was on vacation last week we banked an episode Mm. uh so we weren't able to respond to the news of i guess june 20th to the 25th um which i don't think much happened that week was there? I don't. I, I was checking the phone because I was at the cabin vacation. I was on a boat. It was great, but I still I'm addicted to the discourse, so I'm still checking Twitter. I don't think a lot happened. Yeah, I think it's good that both of us got our vacations in when we did because I mean we are really like headed deep into like the regular season. We just progressed past like pitchers and catchers and spring training, and we're right in the playoffs as far as banter goes you know not a lot of great new albums coming out recently but like banter ramping up well i knew my vacation was over because i got back on june 25th which was a saturday and i get back and immediately banter just starts hitting me you have uh the War on Drugs opening for the Rolling Stones in London and they post a photo on Instagram of Tom Cruise backstage at a War on Drugs concert, which is incredible. And then that same day, you have Goose, IndieCast's favorite jam band, playing at Radio City Music Hall, sold out show with Father John Misty and Trey Anastasio. A huge night in the jam band community. I was like, yeah, my vacation's over now. This is like the bat single. The bat signal is calling me back. It's saying, hey, get back. Or it's like when Superman and Superman 2 gets his powers taken away and then he's in the Fortress of Solitude and like the world's falling apart. It's like, I got to put the cape back on. (laughs) That was like me. But then, of course, the big news of the week. Is this this the biggest news for us? Well, not the year because we haven't heard the actual song yet. Okay. But the 1975 uh, posted on Instagram what we believe are the lyrics to its upcoming sig- sig- uh, single that's coming out next week called Part of the Band. I'm just putting the asterisk on it because we haven't heard the song. These could, these might not be the lyrics. They might just be thoughts that Maddie Healy had that he wanted to get on Instagram. But we're assuming that these are the lyrics. And we're hoping that they're the lyrics because oh my God, these are um, like we we we. I'm just I'm just mad that there isn't a screen grab with the actual dialogue from the Doors, the great fucking lyrics scene. <laughs> like I like our friend of the pod, Miranda Reiner, actually posted that scene on YouTube. But I tried getting the closed captioning, and it's like twice great lyrics. Like it, it, the the closed captioning is way off. So we got to work yeah. on getting a screen grab with that. I didn't know Miranda put that up. Yeah. Oh, wow. 
that's 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 doing service to uh, your country by doing that. Um, and I believe in the movie, Morrison is reading the lyrics to Moonlight Mile. Moonlight Drive, yeah, that's Moonlight the Drive. Sorry, Moonlight Mile is a Rolling Stones song. Moonlight Drive is the Doors song, and yeah, Ray Manzarek, played by Kyle MacLachlan, is just like those are great fucking lyrics, man. Not being <laughs> ironic, totally blown away by Moonlight Drive <laughs> on the beach. Um, but yeah, these, so these are the lyrics that we think are from the 1975 uh, single. And you just told me before we uh, started recording that you haven't actually read the lyrics yet. You're aware that this song is coming. Yeah. You ever read the, so, so I'm going to get your real-time reactions to some of the, These aren't all the lyrics. I just pulled out some Joyce cuts. Um, okay, here's, here's the first excerpt. I was living my best life, living with my parents, way before the paying penance and verbal propellants and my cancellations. There it is. (laughs) There it is. Like we, 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 I I think in pre, in a previous episode, we were doing a little like off track betting odds on like whether the 1975 album would tackle cancel culture. And there was like a 99% chance that would happen. Now, was it going to be on the first single or what presumably is the first single again, this stuff, we're going to find out apparently on the 7th what this song sounds like. Well, and like, and, and was he, because I know he was on Twitter and then he um, ran afoul of some people for some reason, then he deleted his Twitter. Like, mm-hmm. what was the story with that again? I honestly, like, I, I, I consider myself at least on this episode, uh, on this podcast, the 1975, like, you know, fan, or at least the relative stand. I honestly can't fucking remember. Like, Maddie Healy wasn't quite, it's not quite Father John Misty stops doing interviews level of, like, uh, the discourse that we're robbed of. But, like, Maddie Healy would say some, like, not offensive, but just, like, dumb shit. And I, I honestly cannot remember, like, we're, we're it, mailbag, like, you're, they're going to hit us off. Like, we are just slacking on 1975 discourse. Well, we should say, uh, as a preview, that our uh, next week's episode, we're going to be doing a special report on the 1975. We're going to be doing a deep dive into their discography. And we'll probably be talking about the single, too, presuming that drops on schedule. So that's something to look forward to. And, and maybe we can, we'll get the IndieCast intern on that. We can We can clarify why Maddie Healy was canceled and why he's mentioning it in the song. I want to get to the next lyric here. And I fell in love with a boy. It was kind of lame. I was Rombo and he was Paul Verlaine. In my imagination, so many cringes in the heroin binges. I was coming off the hinges, living on the fringes of my imagination. Um, uh, an amazing <laughs> rhyme scheme there. He, Maddie was feeling the inges. Like, I want, how many words can rhyme with syringes here? Ian, I want to ask you a question. Did you know that Medi Healy uh, did heroin? Uh, you, here's the genius thing about this lyric. Because he's never mentioned that, like, in every single interview, right? <laughs> like, he's never talked about that. This is, uh, I was like, what? He did heroin? What a shock. He didn't actually use the word syringes. Like, I oh, it's think binges. that's... binges. Sorry. Yes. They're, they're, that is kind of potentially 4d chess here like it's that rhyme that never comes it's like this sort of damocles type uh situation going on and okay like yeah this he, is- he left it on the table yeah like, syringe, <laughs> like it, it was like right there i don't I, I wonder if he's kicking himself right now it's like oh, i should have used syringes 
He's going to do the Kanye West, I'm a fix wolves type thing where he like goes right back into I'm a fit. That's what the 1970 Maddie Healy comes like Truman Black, I believe is his handle. It's like, yo, I'm a fixed part of the band by putting syringes in there. That right there to me is like quintessential Maddie Healy. It's like, you know, kind of the teasing, uh, you know, teasing uh, commentary about his perceived sexuality. There's, you know, Rimbo in there and Paul Verlaine. Then heroin, like, I mean, what more could you possibly want out of a Maddie Healy lyric? Yeah, it's got it all. But I will say that this next excerpt, I think this might be the most irritating. So I, I want to get your take on this one. I know some vaccinista tote bag chic baristas sitting in East on their communi- communista keisters writing about their ejaculations. I like my men like I like my coffee, full of soy milk and so sweet I won't offend anybody whilst... Staining the pages of the nation. The Wilst is what does it for me. That is what pushes it over the edge. And and makes it for me the most irritating uh, lyric in this song. He's British, so like I know like that's that's something that I really take issue with with Americans who used Wilst. Um but yeah, boy, oh, yeah. Vaccinista, I've not heard that one before, but it does rhyme with baristas and communista and keister, which is, I don't know, is that borscht belt appropriation right there? Um, <laughs> I've never I've never heard communista before. That's why I stumbled over that one. I've ne- actually, I've never heard of vaccinista before uh, this, either. This, this right here, this is like jackpot. Um, I would do and just fly on the wall to be the other members of the 1975. Like, like I don't, I don't think they like watch him write lyrics, but like when he hands this in now, <laughs> I just want to say like these, these lyrics are, I, I can't even say whether they're like good. There's something they're, yeah, they're I, really something. And uh, I, wait, we're not even done with like, he's still going. Right. Well, yeah. There's one more excerpt. I just want to say something quick because you you were talking about like when Americans say words like "whilst" and how that's annoying when Americans adopt British uh, you know, slang. Uh, I uh, one of my pet peeves is when people say "chuffed." I'm chuffed. Yeah. Meaning like I'm honored. I feel like no, you're an American. You can't say "chuffed." <laughs> today I band, learned what chuffed, "chuffed" actually. Yeah. Today I learned what "chuffed" actually means. Huh. It sounds to me like I'm like pissed off or like I'm huffy, but chuffed right. means flattered, huh? Yeah, you gotta you gotta be British. You gotta be able to say it in the British accent. If you're just an American saying, "Oh, I'm I'm chuffed that uh, you know you retweeted me," I don't know. That just doesn't seem to work for me. But anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting I'm getting distracted from the task at hand. We have one more <laughs> excerpt here. This might be as annoying as the previous lyric. It's a toss up, possibly, but here it is. Am I ironically woke? The butt of my joke, or am I just some post coke average skinny bloke calling his ego imagination? Actually, that one's kind of self aware. I guess I don't mind that lyric as much. That's maybe like the least annoying lyric to me. Still annoying, but like not as annoying as some of the other things that we just said. We got cancel culture and ironically woke. Um, post coke, <laughs> I mean, he's kind of switching up his drugs here, which, you know, I think, uh, look, I'm not going to like cast speculation on his. Uh, you know, substance regimen, but wow. Like, okay. So I I just want us to like do a little thought exercise with this. Now I I can't remember what your take is on love it. If we made it, um, that song, you know, I don't mind that song. Actually. I, I, it's a song that I liked when it came out and then the discourse ruined it for me a little bit because I think that there was too much meaning 
projected onto it. But I don't know. I like. I I guess I like songs where people just list things. <laughs> I like <laughs> it's the end of the world as we know it and uh, subterranean homesick blues. So it's kind of in that style. I don't know. But you don't like that song as, as um, a 1975 fan, right? Like, aren't you not a huge fan of that song? Not my favorite. I think it works within the context of the record. I don't like when I think when I. Th- I don't think that song defined 2018 as like future generations will like look back on this song like, you know, the same way that, you know, we use like all along the watchtower to, uh, you know, anytime or like give me shelter anytime like a movie wants to talk about the Vietnam War. Like this will remember this will remind me what it was like to be a music writer in 2018, which is a much, much uh, smaller carving out of the culture as opposed to like oh people are gonna know like oh this is definitely 2018 but like with that song in particular and even give yourself a try which i you know is a a much better song like if i were to read the lyrics before the song actually dropped i might feel the same way i do about part of the band like one of the things that i love about the 1975 and we're let me yeah we're we're gonna get deeper into this next episode is that unlike a lot of bands who are at their i guess popularity or critical level there you can look at like a band like haim or vampire weekend like you have to be really creative to think of them making a song that just like completely shits the bed and is like will be taken to task uh, on an online forum the not at with every great 1975 song actually every 1975 song whether it's great but especially if it's great you could see very clearly how badly this could have gone no matter how high they fly you can always see the floor below and that makes them just exciting to me in a way that i don't get from i guess i don't know bands with a better sense of quality control like the 1975's quality control, I think, just kind of happens by accident, and eventually they're just gonna run out of luck. They're just Maddie. Maddie Healy is playing Russian roulette with that pen every single time, <laughs> and maybe this is like the one where like everything the 1975 has just been able to skirt out of pure luck or genius completely falls apart, and then we like cast doubt on like whether they were ever good, and I don't know, maybe there's like a no, the 975 are actually pretty good, and then we start that pendulum swing in again. Yeah, you know, I I am intrigued by the fact that I think the next the, 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 that this new album that the song's going to be on, I think it's only like 11 songs long, so which is like a a revolutionary thing for a 1975 record. But we don't they're... know if these songs are nine minutes long. Let's just well, okay, <laughs> that's, that's okay, that's true. But you know, assuming that they're normal 1975 songs, it looks like it's going to be like an 11 minute. 40 minute record which suggests that maybe there is some quality control on this album and maybe as you suggested like this song maybe it looks dumb on paper but the music will be really good and in the context of of the song it'll work i will say you know as someone who likes to make fun of the 1975 and is fully prepared to do it again that i do think that maddie healy is not so completely unself-aware that he wouldn't anticipate people seeing things like ironically woke or the cancellations reference and, and and not expect people to jump on it. Like there must be something in him that like, I know people are going to react to this and uh, 
maybe that's part of the point, you know? So there is maybe sort of like a willful aspect to this. I don't think he's totally deluded. Um, I do think that in the wake of that song, Love If We Made It, it does seem like he does have this pressure on himself to be constantly topical. And that's the thing about this song is that he's just squeezing so many different topical references in that I don't know. I If he nails this one, if he pulls this from the jaws of defeat <laughs> and, and is victorious with this single, I'll be impressed because he's really stacking the deck against himself this time. But maybe he loves to challenge. Like you said, he's playing Russian roulette. He's yeah. Christopher Walken in The Deer Hunter. You know, <laughs> like he's, he's riding it out, riding out the thrills. So I don't know. I'm definitely intrigued to hear this song. And I'm like, he might hear this and like, you know, rhyme Christopher Walken in the Deer Hunter, like with like the band Deer Hunter. Maddie Healy (laughs) might actually do that. I'll just like, I'll just express like, I love the 1970s, also love making fun of them. Exactly. One of the pleasures of this band. We've talked about that many times. And it's, I've been a fan and I've been a hater. I've been on both sides of the fence. But yeah, I'm glad that they exist. I'm excited that they're going to liven up our summer here by putting out new music. It's going to be great. Um, okay, so should we explain the 7.7 tattoo reference? It would be funnier finally? if we just like let it hang without any context whatsoever, but I think this story is like quintessential indie cast, so we got to get into it. Yeah, so okay, so there's this band. Uh, they're from Brooklyn. Sure. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, okay, they're, they're called Muna. And they just put out uh, a new record uh, this week, and uh, it's a self-titled record. I believe it's their third album. And uh, this is a band, I would describe them as like, you know, I don't mean that for this to sound disparaging, but I'm just saying it for the point of doing a quick reference. I would describe them as like an off-brand Heim, right? Like they kind of sound like Heim. They're not as well known as Heim. They're like sort of like (laughs) on the B team. Of Heim, like like indie pop, which you know, mixing indie rock with like you know sort of like a Taylor Swift type sensibility. Like, would you say that's an accurate way to describe them? I would say that's the that's accurate. Now, um, they were on a major label for their previous two albums, and it sounds to me like they were kind of doing that. It was like in major label indie pop, if that makes sense. Which means like, yeah, they throw in some Heim, they throw in some you know. Tooth that like you know Dixie Chicks perhaps, and now they're on Phoebe Bridgers's label. Uh, yeah, satisfa- oh. like uh, Satisfactory, also um, Dead Ocean. So they've got that sort of like Carly Rae Jepsen slash Robin uh, Fallen indie pop sort. Like it, it's a sort of narrative you can get behind, where it's like, oh, the major label didn't know what to do with them, but uh, now they have like far more momentum than they ever had um, as a actual major label band. So I'd say like this is one of the bigger uh, albums of the summer. Um, and, but we wouldn't be talking about that if that, if that were just the case, there's something else going on with these 7.7 tattoos. So uh, can I explain this one? Yeah, you go ahead. You, cause you brought this to my attention. This, cause this actually came out like a few weeks ago, but, it slipped over yeah, so radar. Yeah, so they had a profile done at Pitchfork um, where it starts out with all three of them uh, getting 7.7 tattoos to commemorate the score that their previous album, I believe, got. And uh, the reason for that is 
depending on where you're hanging on Twitter, like 7.7 has become this like kind of badge of honor amongst uh, certain artists. Like uh, it, apparently like it's a score that's been given to a lot of albums that come from like more of like a queer leaning pop or indie pop. I think uh, Casey Chambers got it recently, right? Uh, I, I saw a list of these albums, a couple of ones I reviewed, like the second Church's album and Mitski's Bury Me at Makeout Creek got a 7.7. Like it's an understood inside joke amongst a self-selecting number of people. And yeah, like, and, and like some of them are queer artists. Some of them are like artists who are perceived to have a strong queer audience. Like the, right. like the recent Casey Musgraves record was on this list. Uh, she's not a queer artist, but she has a big, you know, a strong queer following. Um, I will say I thought like a 7.7 for her most recent album was maybe kind of generous. I feel like people generally agreed that like it wasn't as good as Golden Hour. Like it was a pretty good record. But <laughs> anyway, it's similar to the emo thing of emo albums getting an 8.0 but not getting a best new music. Exactly. It's like almost, if at least for like, you know, long tail discourse, it's like better to get like the 8.0 and like mobilize the 12 well, at least for emo bands, like the 12 people who like won't shut up about your band uh, complaining about that. So again, like getting a tattoo, like self-aware, it's a joke. Also, like it's kind of funny that this major label pop act would do it, but I guess that's just like kind of a sign of where we're at. So in this Pitchfork story, I think it's like one member of the band is getting a 7.7 tattoo. And when I read that, I felt like... This seems like a pretty blatant attempt to shame Pitchfork into giving like their new record a best new music, you know, because they're sort of calling them out, like in a in a good natured way, but it's definitely a call out uh, to give their record like a best new music when it gets reviewed in a few weeks. And you flash forward to this week, the album comes out, the review comes out, and they get a seven point eight. <laughs> they get a point one increase. They don't get the best new music. And really, I think the issue is, I mean, aside from just looking at the record on its merits and giving the record what you think it deserves, it did seem like they doomed themselves by making it an issue in this article. Because like, if Pitchfork had given them the best new music after that, even if they had deserved it, there would have been people who, who would have said, well, just because they got this tattoo and they made you feel bad <laughs> about not giving it a higher score in the past. So it, it, it seemed like a plan. If that was the plan that was I'm doomed just to a little like this to me is like stolen valor right here. It's like, we, we like arguing about scores and like getting like tattoos like that is, that's supposed to be like, you know, Reddit lurker type stuff, not pop star stuff. Like, come on, don't, don't appropriate my culture like that. But actually this story took a turn, um, like a day or two after the review actually ran, um, they, they, they went on Twitter and quote tweeted the review and it's like, yeah, the score is petty though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They said it was great review, but the score was petty. Uh, sort of like a, again, it seems good natured, but the implication being, oh, you purposely didn't give us the best new music because of this tattoo. Um, I gotta say that like, you know, I haven't written a ton for Pitchfork in the past, but I have been in these situations when I have written for them where, Artists complain about the score, and that's just so off-putting to me. You know, this grade, this grade grubbing from artists about scores. Um, you know, like my boys and Goose, 
They were reviewed on Pitchfork last week. They got a 6.7. I'm sure they were just happy to be reviewed. Like, there's a lot of bands that never even get covered by Pitchfork. So this idea of, like, complaining about your score, I don't know. To me, it smacks of, like, Pitchfork (laughs) privilege here. That there's some artists who just expect a certain kind of score, and when they don't get it, even if if it's just, like, a matter of, like, decimal points that they're off... I don't know. I don't like that. That that, that bothers me a little bit. When I, I think what you stuff. just did right there is put it in the atmosphere, like pitchfork privilege that could show up in a 1975 lyric. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> I'd be so honored, Maddie Healy. If you're if you're listening, uh, please give me co-writing credit if you end up doing that. Um, before we get to the meat of our episode, we got to talk about the smooth criminal alien ant farm discourse that was taking place this week. Uh, do you want to talk about this? Do you want to sure. s- explain this to our less online listeners out there, what, what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, when, when we said, like, we are, like, really in the, we are deep in the shit as far as, like, discourse goes, like, having gotten back from vacation. So, this is, this is like, again, another quintessential indie cast thing, because we could either call it, like, the best narrative in our year-end indie cast, these are the worst, because it was, like, this very contained thing on like new metal Twitter that metastasized into like an all day affair. And like the, like I, I spent maybe a couple hours offline yesterday cause you know, I had to work and shit and I like missed it. And so apparently someone posted the video from alien ant farm, smooth criminal. You might remember it. They just make a lot of stupid faces in a wrestling ring, uh, <laughs> surrounded by a bunch of like SoCal bros, uh, covering Michael Jackson. And, Someone was like, man, like they were just feeling nostalgic for it, whether they love the song or whether they like being 11 years old in 2001, either way. And so for whatever reason, this sets off like a firestorm of like backlash about how we need to really call out this song for being actually terrible that like we cannot re we can if we tolerate this, then your children will be next type uh, action. And it's like, I don't remember. I don't remember anyone ever liking that song and like or that we're running the risk of alien ant farm giving being given too much props or whatever like anytime alien ant farm comes up like what the only thing i like to point out is that they released uh their first single movies flopped completely uh then they released a cover that was a hit then they released movies again and then it also <laughs> flopped, which is actually what happened with Orgy. They released Stitches, which is a fucking awesome song. Flop. They do Blue Monday. Hit. They release Stitches. That becomes a hit. So uh, I guess that was like a trend in the early 2000s. But either way, it's like, man. Yeah, covering songs that weren't even that old at the time. Like, like Smooth Criminal would have only been about, you know, 15 years old or so when uh alien ant farm covered it so it's not like people who were alive at the time wouldn't have remembered the michael jackson version which is, i mean i think the thing that people don't like about that song among other things is that it seems like it's like a white rock band making fun of a song by a black artist like the joke is that they're covering a pop song which is different than the orgy cover you know i think there's like a legitimate love for New Order, and there's no there's no irony in that cover. But if you watch the video for Smooth Criminal, it's like they probably like Michael Jackson, but they're kind of making fun of Michael Jackson at the same time. I don't know. I, 
I watched the video because of this of this discourse that was happening. And by the way, that video on YouTube has been streamed 250 million times. So I think there actually is a strong audience out there for Alien Ant Farm, Smooth Criminal. Like, I don't think all those people are watching it because they hate it. Like, there must be a lot of people who love it. I, I, I just looked up on Spotify. It's been streamed 321 million times, which is unbelievable. It's less than um, I would expect. Yeah, well... You- <laughs> Yeah, like what? What, what would have been your uh, guess like for Spotify five, streams? Five hundred million, maybe. Like I, I, I actually, you know, th- th- I, I'll backtrack. Like I don't know what numbers are, you know, really happening for like two thousand era hits, but like, uh, you know, I'll like see like a rando Drake song, like you know, like a deep cut, and I'll be like two hundred million. So I, I, I don't know about like inflation. Like, I just remember I worked at a radio station at that time, like an alt-rock radio station. We played that song all the fucking time, which also explains how I know the song movies. <laughs> yeah, you know, the funniest thing to me, and this was my contribution to the conversation, is that uh, there's a 20th Century Masters Millennium Collection Best of Greatest Hits album for Alien Ant Farm, uh, which... <laughs> And if you remember that, this was like a CD series. It has sort of like a silver cover, and there's like a photo of the band in the middle. And it was, it was just like these budget greatest hits albums that you could buy at Walmart or, or Target. And it was for every sort of band. Like, I'm sure like the Jim Blossoms have one. They definitely one, and do. Like every kind of like second and third tier alternative rock band does. But like the Jim Blossoms have like multiple hits. Like there's there's three or four songs that like people could name, like if you know the music of the 90s. Like, what is on an Alien Hand Farm Greatest Hits? I guess you'd have movies, like you said. And then is it just, like, nine remixes of Smooth Criminal? I mean, I, I don't... Like, what other hits did that band have? Uh, none that I can remember, but I, I the Millennium Collection, like... And you see, the, like, the modern version of it with, like, you know, Spotify will have the essential, you know, fill-in-the-blank here. I love these Millennium Collections because you have bands like Alien Ant Farm and I have Bowling for Soup, which has one where it just, the font and the picture just makes it look like a super classy affair. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, it's like... Well, just like the name, too, like 20th Century Masters. <laughs> Even though, like, Alien Ant Farm didn't really have hits until the 21st century. So I don't know, I guess they technically came out of the late 90s, but I wouldn't call them a 20th Century Master. It seems like a little inflated for Alien Ant Farm. We need to have a Patreon I, for like bonus content where we do like a 1975 deep dive followed by an Alien Ant Farm deep dive. I think that's what the people want. You mentioned Bowling for Soup, and when I was watching that Smooth Criminal video, it did. the thought did occur to me that this is like a poor man's Bowling for Soup, which I didn't <laughs> know that that was possible. You could get, it's like you're already in the Bowling for Soup lane, but you're like, eh, I want to go a little lower than this. What's like this, but yeah. like a little worse? Bowling for Soup is just too cerebral, <laughs> too, I don't know, artsy. Can we like just maybe popular? Let's get a little more popular. Yeah, yeah, they write it. their own songs. So can we get like a band that's like this, but they're covering 80 songs? Like not just singing about the 80s, but just like covering 80 songs? You know, that, that would be great. It's like, oh, Alien Ant Farm. Okay, awesome. Uh, well, okay, I can see that we're like a half hour into this. Which is the warning for us to get to the meat of the episode. So why don't we go do that? So we're talking about our favorite under-the-radar records of 2022 so far. And I think we were pretty strict with defining what under-the-radar was. Like, I tried not to mention any albums that I haven't already recommended 
on this show. Did you do the same? Yeah, because a lot of the under the radar, like my first thoughts, like, oh, wait, we did this on Recommendation Corner. Um, So, yeah, we're just trying to bring like new stuff and, you know, under the radar just in general, but maybe even under the radar for like IndieCast listeners, because I know that like we have a certain, I guess, brand as indicated up top by the War on Drugs, Father John Misty, Goose slash Trey confluence. So, yeah, it might like under the radar. We're pretty liberal with it, but like I think the the ironclad rule is that we haven't mentioned it thus far on this show. Yeah. So again, we're hoping that you come away with uh, some recommendations here. This is sort of like an extended recommendation corner, really. This is the, we're going to just be recommending albums that we haven't already talked about that maybe you haven't read about elsewhere, or if you did, it was just maybe swept under the rug soon after like a review ran or something. So we're each going to talk about three albums. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so the first album I want to talk about is an artist called Grace Ives. She's from Brooklyn. Um, In 2020, she put out a record called Second, which was very minimal, I guess you would call it, indie pop. It It was an album that, like, well, it's not like, oh, this is a pandemic album, but it just sort of reminds me of, like, kind of being stuck inside, like, just listening to a bunch of songs on Spotify, and it just sounded like someone made it in their apartment. Very charming on that level. Uh, two years later, they are out with a album called Janky Star. Now, I know what you're thinking with, like, Under the Radar. Hey, didn't this just get Best New Music? Which it did a couple of weeks ago, but otherwise... I've not seen like anything written about it. Uh, it got, I looked at album of the year. It got one other review. Um, and also I think this qualifies as an under the radar choice, at least for like what you might expect to be recommended by IndieCast. Everything you might read about this album, um, you know, brings up like, oh, it's like Carly Ray Jepsen or MIA or like the lyrics themselves. It's very slice of life stuff. Um, I've seen high maintenance in Broad City brought up with this. So uh, boil it down. It's like some real Brooklyn shit, (laughs) which, you know, usually reflexively annoys me. Like those sort of like shows or albums that use like the 20 something experience of like being a kind of broke New Yorker as like the most important shit on earth. Right. And yet, (laughs) and yet. Um, I really love this album. It's like an example of like indie pop as I like to experience it. Like we brought up Muna before where it's te- indie pop, I guess, because of the label it's on or the associations. But to me, it sounds no different than anything I would hear in, say, Ralph's or CVS or any given Netflix rom-com. Um, this is very it's it's very uh, charming and small. And I mean that in the sense that it is. Uh, a pop album in a, about like just basically indie stuff about being broke, about working at a flower shop. Um, and it's very hooky, but in a way that's like not overselling it. And despite all the recommendations that have been thrown around it, um, maybe it's because it's like a 10 song album. That's like 25 minutes. It reminds me almost more of Joyce Manor than say like Caroline Polachek or something along those lines. Yeah, Joyce Manor, if you know they made all their music on a roll in five oh five. Um it's 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 slick enough to sound like not like completely bedroom artist, but nonetheless, um yeah, I'm just really taken by this album. Uh it's a good 
it, it's it's my version of, I guess like song of the summer type stuff and you know if you if you think of like the stuff I usually recommend for recommendation corner like straight up like screamo shit this is a little off that path but I highly recommend it um, so again Grace Ives janky star uh, all right so the first album I want to mention as a under the radar favorite from 2022 is a record called Days and Nights by a Brooklyn band called Sooner. And if you read my column at Uproxx, this album might not be totally under the radar because I mentioned it in my uh, mid-year list of favorite albums that have come out so far this year. But I think in the larger conversation about music, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about this album. Um, and I think it's really worth checking out. It is one of those records, I think, that does fall through the cracks easily because it's not really bowling you over the head with you know, something innovative or something that feels like zeitgeisty or of the moment. It is, for all intents and purposes, a fairly straightforward shoegaze or dream pop record. And as we all know, there's like a lot of records like that out in the world. But I uh, always argue that like with records like this, if you can find an album that actually stands out and it really executes the formula well, that actually is a great achievement because there's a lot of bands trying to do this and they don't quite pull it off. But I think Sooner really does come through on Days and Nights. And I think a lot of that has to do with the lead singer. Her name is Federica Tassano. And uh, I think she's just a great singer. And I think it really stands out. I think with a lot of bands like this, you tend to have singers that sort of mumble or it's very gauzy. It's you know a lot of reverb going on. You actually can't really tell you know, what the singer is or what they sound like. But... With this band, along with, again, those shoegazy sounding guitars, uh, I think Tassano's vocals really kind of cut through the murk in a really strong way and give this band a personality that I think a lot of bands in this space don't necessarily have. You know, you feel like they're sort of relying on all the effects of, you know, the delay pedals and, and, and again, the reverb and all the things that you associate with this kind of music. I would say, too, that for people that are a fan of a band like Turnover, which is a band that is, I think, in the emo scene, but also sounds a lot like real estate. They're kind of in that middle area. Sooner, to me, is another band that I think would kind of slot next to Turnover. Turnover being another band that I think executes this sort of thing really well. So, again, this is a record that it's not going to bowl you over. It's not a revolutionary record by any means, but I think it's a very well-executed dream pop record. It's an album that I find to be just compulsively listenable, and I really recommend it. So again, it's called Days and Nights. The band is Sooner. That's my first recommendation. I, I love bringing up albums like that because those are, are the ones I always feel are missing from my life. Like the ones that like uh, are... I, it's like this... <laughs> It's like the B plus three and a half stars, but I end up listening it to to that one more than the stuff that is like number eight on my ear. Exactly. Like the albums that you can't really put a hook on because, oh, it's not about Donald Trump or it's not about the coronavirus. <laughs> you know, there's no larger narrative to it. It's just like a like really beautiful music that you want to listen to all the time. Like that's that that's what that kind of record is. So the one I'm going to bring up next is a band called it's very SEO unfriendly uh, band called Praise. And Ooh. the album is also very SEO unfriendly, which is all in a dream. So before I get into Praise, we got to talk about Turnstile. Uh, one of the band members in Praise is also in Turnstile. So um, one of the things that I've been 
really just watching intently in 2022 is Turnstile's uh, Turnstile's Glow Up, for lack of a better term. You know, the album's called Glow On. I think it's, you know, kind of intentional. Uh, apparently, they're, like, getting radio airplay on, like, classic rock stations in Baltimore. So, um, they're not, like, Japanese breakfast big. I don't think Turnstile's playing SNL anytime soon. But, like, I've just been fascinated to see, like, what their big breakthrough means for hardcore or just heavy guitar music as a whole like whether they're going to start popping up in recommended if you likes for indie bands that sound nothing like them or whether they're gonna you know a bunch of bands that sort of try to do turnstile get signed or whether you know whether it's like a rising tide lifts all ships type thing um and i'm also open to the possibility that it's sort of like death heaven where you know, Def Heaven didn't really open a lane for other metal bands. They just became like the one metal band a lot of indie listeners liked. Um, because a record like Praise has really, really flown under the radar. Um, I looked it up on an album of the year. It hasn't been reviewed by any publications. Um, so this one, it's, you know, in the Turnstile camp, they've played a bunch of shows with them. And it also sounds a, a little bit like Fiddlehead, another uh, breakthrough band of 2021, where it's you know, it's slick, it's catchy, it's rooted in old school emo, like, you know, 80s stuff, like borderline youth crew, and kind of pop hardcore, like Civ or Gorilla Biscuits. Um, and so it's a record that sounds like grown up hardcore. Uh, it, it, it's not like a band you would see in a basement with five people, but it's also not that kind of hardcore where it sounds slick because it's made by guys in their 40s who've, you know, been around and it's professional. Um, it's a passionate record. It's hooky and similar to like sooner. It doesn't have a great hook as far as narrative. Like if you're not checking for this kind of music, it'll probably fall under the radar. It's gotten some good notice on, you know, more punk leaning sites, but, um, yeah, I'm just sort of surprised it hasn't gotten a little more traction just because of the turnstile uh, association. Yeah. You know, I checked out this album after I saw that you put it in our outline and, I, I agree with you. I I like the record, and I I think the reason why Turnstile has crossed over and why they get played on the radio is that if you're just the drive-by listener and you hear their song, you know, between like Avenged Sevenfold and uh, you know a Red Hot Chili Peppers classic from the '90s or something, uh, they make sense. I mean, they just sound like a modern alt rock band. Like you wouldn't necessarily know about their background in hardcore, um, and. I think you could say the same thing about Praise. Like, you don't necessarily have to be, like, a hardcore aficionado to get that band. They just sound like a rock band that has maybe, maybe like, they're spiritually hardcore, but they sound more like an alt-rock band if you're just listening to them without any other kind of previous knowledge. So, uh, yeah, definitely check out that album. Um, my second under-the-radar album is called River Fools and Mountain Saints. It's by a Kentucky singer-songwriter named Ian No. That's N-O-E. And got to get an Ian in there for uh, IndieCast <laughs> purposes. Uh, he got a lot of attention back in 2019 when he put out his first record. It was called Between the Country, and it was uh, produced by Dave Cobb, who you may know as the current king of Americana. I mean, this guy's produced albums by Chris Stapleton, Sturgill Simpson, Brandy Carlisle, Jason Isbell. Basically, everyone in that space has been produced by Dave Cobb. 
Ian No, of course, is like, I guess, one of the lesser known artists that's in his stable, but he definitely belongs, I think, in that same lane. Uh, one way that I would describe him, and I think this is pertinent for our listeners, is that he kind of sounds like MJ Lenderman if MJ Lenderman were more into John Prine than Neil Young. Like, there's a real story song aspect to what he does, and he writes a lot about small town life. He writes about some of the same things that, like, John Prine would write about. Like, there's a song on this record about, like, a retired guy and, like, his just his daily life, and it's sort of like a funny, sad song. There's another, like, really cool song, very chugly, if I can say that, called P.O.W. Blues, which is, like, a first-person song about, like, a guy in a prison camp, which is, like, a pretty... It's like a really kind of a cool narrative. It, it feels like a movie that you're watching from the 70s, but it's in this song. Um, and this second record, I feel like it hasn't gotten as much attention, even though, again, it's produced by Dave Cobb. Um, I think it's a, it's a more like full sound record. Like it's a fuller sounder sounding record than the first one, um, although not dramatically so. It's not like a super slick record by any means, but... Whereas the first record is, it is more of like a guy with a guitar type album. This feels like more with him in a band, uh, which again, I, I would liken that again to the MJ Lenderman record. I think there's some aesthetic touchstones that both of those records would share. Uh, but again, if, if you're into, I guess, lyrics and you're into storytelling songs, I think that this guy is really doing some like really good work and he's not getting all that much attention you you i only see him written about in places like saving country music like you know the sort of americana blogs out there i think that this album was also reviewed by the guardian but i haven't seen anything on like indie music sites about this guy but i do think that more than like a lot of people in that space that this record would appeal to indie listeners as well as you know the more sort of americana typical audience that a record like this would would attract so Definitely check it out. Again, the record's called River Fools and Mountain Saints. The guy's called Ian No, N-O-E. Really good record. Really good Ian, Ian. Strong addition <laughs> yeah. to the Ian community. Yeah, Ian, uh, Kentucky, like, you, you, you got my attention. There so. you go. See, yeah, you were an Ian in Kentucky for a while. That's correct. So, yeah, I, I, that, that one is definitely in the queue. All right, so uh, the last album I'm going to talk about, this is in, like, a... It's like a sub 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 genre that's really uh, been a been a mainstay and recommendation corner of former Tiny Engines bands. Oh yeah, Tiny Engines being the uh, label that. Uh, gosh, if you think about the roster they had at one point, it was like the Hotel Years, Spirit of the Beehive, Awake but Still in Bed, Wild Pink, Loaded, uh, Loaded, lo- uh, Illuminati Hotties were on there as well. Um, just an absurdly stacked roster that, um, great A&R business, maybe shakier. Yes. Can I say that? You know, <laughs> yeah. but they had great, they were, but they had great A&R over there. They could recognize talent. Yeah. So, uh, I think the last album they ever put out before, I guess, just kind of everything going to shit was in 2019. It was a band called Pendant. Uh, I know there's another artist called Pendant who's like more ambient and like really to Puerco S who's like a kind of a bigger ambient artist. That's not this band. It's Pendant. It's all caps. And so in 2019, they put out an album that was, you know, kind of like a modern shoegaze record. Um, it was really good. Uh, Name Around Your Neck, great song. But, you know, due to the label kind of disintegrating right before its eyes, it got just kind of buried. And so like a lot of, like quite a few uh, former Tiny Engines bands, they ended up on Saddle Creek. 
Um, and so three years later, they're putting out an album called Harp. Uh, does this sound like shoegaze? A little bit, but it really, really sounds like a lot of stuff that we kind of talk about in um, IndieCast Hall of Fame, which is uh, it's got some shoegaze. It's got house music. There are like, you know, the Amen breakbeat going on. There's a little bit of hip hop. So it reminds me a bit of those late 90s post Beck like grab bag alt rock records that just tried to throw drum machines but like distorted guitars all in the mix and you know sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't but it always sounded interesting and so um this one his new album harp um it's a lot about uh the relationship we had with his father um and just like grief and you know drug use and so forth and um very interesting narrative but like i think with a lot of music of this ilk despite the fact that the narrative is good and it's interesting sonically, it just doesn't have like a hook. You can say, Oh, this appeals to this person. Um, this is a fascinating record to encounter because like, I don't know if all of it's good. Like sometimes it doesn't necessarily pull off what it's trying to do, but it's always interesting. And that makes me come back to it in a way that, uh, an album that's been executed strongly, but in a more kind of generic way would. Um, so Pendant, Harp, another album that I've not seen anywhere near the amount of uh, conversation that should be around it, but I think that's been the case with some of these bands that were marooned after Tiny Engines broke down. Yeah, the way you're describing it, because I haven't heard this record at all, it, that sounds really cool. I, I, I'm definitely excited to check this out. I love that reference to those late 90s uh, sort of throw everything against the wall but the kitchen sink type record. I mean, I think that's seems like a, like a cool thing to revive and, and, and try to update in 2022. If you love Brand Van 3000, no, I'm just kidding. Yes, if you love Citizen King, <laughs> check this out. It's going to be good. Uh, my last uh, album for, for the under the radar category for 2022 so far is uh, called Dog Hours. It's by a band from Philadelphia called Big Nothing. And I put this band on my list because I was originally going to put good looks on my list the band from texas who put out an album called bummer year uh earlier this year but i've talked about this band a lot already on this show and i also have also written about them so at least like in our corner of the world good looks is not under the radar although i would argue that they are under the radar for the most part in the indie world right now and hopefully that will change but I went with Big Nothing on this list because if if you like that Good Looks record, which is in that Heartland Rock vein with, uh, you know, sort of watery War on Drugs type guitars, you know, which again is something you would very much expect me to recommend. recommend um, I think Big Nothing exists in a similar lane. This is a band that cites artists like The Replacements and Tom Petty as influences, which is great. And you can definitely hear it on this record. It's an album that is... Uh, only 27 minutes long, so it goes by very quickly. All the songs are very punchy. They're very catchy. Again, you can imagine people wearing denim jackets and listening to this kind of music, which is the, the, the thing I like. One thing that I think sets Big Nothing apart from some of the other bands that I've mentioned is that there are three singers in this band, two men and one woman, and they switch off on vocals throughout the record. And that's something I always like when, when bands can do that. When you have multiple people who can sing, you can bring different perspectives when there's people of different genders singing. 
that obviously brings sort of like a Fleetwood Mac element into the band. Although in this band, it's a gender flip. Instead of two women and one man, there's two men and one woman. But again, I think it has a similar effect of really just bringing like a lot of variety to this record and really making it feel like a world onto itself. So again, for all my Heartland Rock fans out there, you love the war on drugs, you heard about good looks on this podcast and you dug into that record and you really like it. I think Big Nothing is another band that you can put into that lane and it's really going to scratch that itch. This, this record, I think, again, it's short, it's punchy, but it delivers the goods. It's called Dog Hours. And yes, it's an under-the-radar record. It doesn't deserve to be, but we are lifting it into the radar so you can all check it out. One thing that I feel I must mention for you know the people who generally check for my recommendation corner, one of the per- people in this band is Pat Graham of Sprainard, the beloved uh, erstwhile Philadelphia pop-punk emo band that was like the one band sa- signed to the new Jade Tree. Mabel, great record. Um, but yeah, Lamo Lamo Records is really becoming a stronghold in recommendation corner. They are like they have Trace Mountains as well, I believe. Uh, yes, yeah, and, very. And they've kind of staked out this territory where it's like the middle ground between like emo and like Americana, and it seems like that is informed by uh, you know like Slaughter Beach Dog, that band uh, where you know that that band sprang from Modern Baseball. Modern Baseball was the first band. Uh, to have a record on Lamo Records, and it seems like there's this evolution that's taken place maybe among people in the scene over the last decade, where they started up maybe in, in the emo world, and now they're moving in sort of like a rootsier direction. And it seems like Lamo, like that's their corner right now of indie rock. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week, and we just gave a bunch of recommendations, but we're going to be giving two more here. So, Ian, why don't you go first? So, if this if this episode was airing, like, maybe a month later, I might include this album in it, because it doesn't seem like it's, you know, getting the traction I think it deserves, but it came out uh, on the 24th. It's an album by a band called Short Fictions. Uh, every moment of every day, the acronym is Emo Ed, which I find to be amusing uh they're a pittsburgh band uh they put out a record in 2019 called fate's worth and death uh that i was really into um it's kind of like emo revival revival a lot of it sounded like early the world is a beautiful place uh this one delves more into a power pop um kind of origami angel sort of uh sort of mode they toured with origami angel and glass beach that was one of the last shows i saw before the pandemic um, so with this album, it takes the same sort of lyrical conceits from the previous record, um, about, you know, they're kind of like hard left politics, unionization, but also putting into like, Hey, it really sucks to be in a band where you're not making any money. So it's got that element to it as well. Um, it's eight songs. It's super listenable, super catchy. Um, it's, I've been heard, I've heard it described as kind of a midpoint between the world is and the sidekicks, which is another kind of like indie cast favorite of meshing emo power pop and just Midwestern yearning. Um, yeah, it's again, a bit of a record without a country, uh, that kind of falls through several cracks. Also, the fact is I'm not writing about music as much as I used to. So, uh, and now I'm like, this might not get reviewed by anyone at all, which is unfortunate, but you know, 
I would say the uh, younger emo people, please step it up. Uh, so yeah, short fictions, every moment of every day, strongly recommend that. So my recommendation this week is a band you probably have heard of if you listen to this show. It's Guided by Voices, one of my favorite bands of all time. And look, this is one of those bands that like they put out so much music, and they have for such a long time, that I think even people who love them tend to be dabblers in their discography. Like maybe you listen to a bit of a new album, or you listen to every other other album that they put out or something. It's just hard to keep up with a band like this. But I'm ringing the alarm here because I really do feel that their record that's out today, it's called Tremblers and Goggles by Rank, very guided by voice's title. I really do think it's one of the best things that they've done in a long time. And I would actually couple that with the other album that they've put out so far this year <laughs> that came out in March called Crystal Nuns Cathedral. Uh, I've been listening to these two albums this week almost as like a double album. Because the thing about these records that make them very un-GBB-like is that they're both tight records that have virtually no filler. Like the Tremblers record that's out today, 10 songs, 38 minutes. Very un-GBB-like. That is 18 songs shorter than Alien Lanes <laughs> and about three minutes shorter. Um, and it really kind of shows this new era that Robert Pollard is in where he is writing, dare I say, almost normal rock songs. <laughs> I mean, they still have the progressive rock element that you would expect from Guided by Voices. There's definitely psychedelic touches going on. But the pop element that I think has been lacking to some degree in his work over the past maybe decade or so really comes to the fore on these records. Like these songs are really catchy. They're really punchy. And again, it's the kind of records that I would say, like if you are a Guided by Voices fan or if you've never listened to them at all and you're just overwhelmed by like the output and you can't keep up with everything that they're doing, I really think you should stop and listen to this record you will really enjoy it. It breezes by. Again, I think that these two albums together represent some of the best and most accessible music that GBB has made, maybe since the early aughts, like around the time of isolation drills. Um, so yes, definitely check out these records. I actually wrote about them this week on Uprock, so if you want to read that column after you listen to this episode, I go more in depth about the albums in my column. But yes, definitely check it out. The new Guided by Voices record, it's called Tremblers and Goggles by Rank. Really, really good record. Guided by um, Voices is making 10-song albums. The 1975 is making I know. 11 songs. What, 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 what is this world coming to? I know, man. It's crazy. I mean, I I, I kind of hope it doesn't uh, continue. I, 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 I don't want him to just make albums like this, but it is like kind of the most radical thing that Robert Pollard could do, I think. It's uh, pretty amazing, and I really love it. Um, well, we've now reached the end of our episode here at IndieCast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.